Welcome to the Allies Podcast. I'm your host, Carmen Farino. Hi, this is Carmen Farino, and welcome to another edition of the Allies Podcast. Uh, I have with me the hosts of uh, Guest in the House Podcast, uh, Dave Shanks, a rapper, MC, journalist, and writer. Welcome, Dave. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And Mickey Hess, author and professor. Welcome, Mickey. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Uh, guys, I'm going to I'm going to dive in um, right, before, right when we were doing soundtrack and we were, and we were talking about uh, just kind of uh, a bunch of different topics. Dave said something that I think is uh, really important to, to put out immediately. Rapping is something you do. Hip hop is something you live. So, Dave, I want to talk about that. Um, tell me about the hip hop life and why you think it's so vital that not just people who are who who love hip hop understand how it's evolving but even people who maybe aren't familiar with it should uh can get a lot of value about understanding it hmm. well i guess the the key in you know understanding that is uh culture mm-hmm. so we all kind of are familiar with culture and different cultures and we all claim different cultures and we all kind of have an understanding of what culture is. So when we look at hip hop as a culture, um, you know, what some would say is capital H I P capital H O P um, that encompasses um, style, dress, dialect, mm-hmm. um, so many things that reach outside of just the music of hip hop mm-hmm. and hip hop music is kind of where rap comes into play well and and it's it's funny because if you look at country music or if you look at you know rock and roll moving into rock and as they started to fragment and splinter and evolve they took a long time mm-hmm. but hip hop has been evolving so quickly you know it's been 35 years 40 years maybe yeah since the you know since wherever you want you you want to say it it, it started new york etc but it seems to me that the 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 evolution of this is accelerated. Do you feel that? It feels that way. And it feels like, um, you know, I guess as we call ourselves old heads at this point, right? Kind of mm-hmm. like um, where I, I consider my generation kind of like the generation who grew up entirely in hip hop. Mm-hmm. So there's not really, it is a little bit of pre hip hop, for me, I mean, I was born in what, 78? So not really, because 73, 74 is kind of when hip hop is, um, you know, kind of marked as beginning. So I've mm-hmm. been hip hop my entire life. And obviously the generation before me was not. Um, so we were talking about how rapidly it's evolved. Mm-hmm. And I think from, you know, maybe every four or five years, it seems like it goes through these incarnations, mm-hmm. you know? And maybe, and that maybe is a sign of youth, you know, kind of if we look at ourselves as, ch- as, as, as kids coming up every four or five years, we were like a completely different person. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah exactly. So I think that it's, it's, it's facing some of those, but I feel like in the last maybe five to 10 years, it kind of starts to look completely different than what even I remember. And I don't consider myself old. I mean, we, you know, we, we laugh and joke and say I'm old. I don't consider myself old as a 43 year old man, but it's a completely different culture than kind of what I grew up being engaged in. Well, and, and, and what's fascinating about that is if you grew up in the culture and you're on the inside of it and it's evolving, you're a part of the evolution. Right. But if you come to it later you've been able to observe it as a, as something separate and that's kind of what happened with you isn't it mickey i mean to an extent um you know i, I was born in 75 so mm-hmm. i think there's some truth to what dave says about hip hop for me feels like it's always been there you know i remember mm-hmm. feeling like when i heard run dmc you know mm-hmm. feeling like well this is this is a whole different thing this is what i'm into as opposed to like my dad, my mom, mm-hmm. my uncle, you know, um, I was growing up in Kentucky. So for the most part, people listen to country, bluegrass, mm-hmm. gospel, 
And, um, you know, I listened to rock, but when I heard hip hop, I felt like, well, this is really my thing. This is for me. And then mm-hmm. it took me this long sort of backwards journey as I was growing up to realize that, hey, wait, that's not for me. <laughs> that's, that's not, <laughs> it wasn't made for me at all. It was marketed to me. It was sold to me, but uh, it was really never intended to be my thing. Well, and that's, that's the, the, the crux of the discussion and the, and the awkwardness, you know, as allies, we try to, we try to kind of zero in on some of the awkwardness in how you talk about an issue. Mm-hmm. And the thing that strikes me, and I want to, I want to throw it at uh, Dave first, and then um, Mickey, I want you to kind of follow on and, and, and build on it. But Dave, what's the difference between appreciation and appropriation? That is a loaded question. And one that, um, uh you know, is up for very much debate. I think appropriation, it's very subjective and it's very kind of personal. Are you appropriating or are you appreciating? You know what I mean? Mm. I mean, one man's appreciation is another man's appropriation. It's hard to kind of um, pinpoint that. I would say um, with anything, whether it's a relationship or anything, intention obviously is key. Mm. You know, your engagement in this culture, your engagement in this music, what is your intention with it? Mm. Is it to exploit it for for riches? Is it to prove something to yourself? Is it a phase? Is it, you know what I mean? Like mm. what what is your intention? And I think a t- intention carries a lot of of the weight of what appropriation is versus appreciation. I'm not um one of the hip hoppers who are kind of like trying to police everyone's involvement yeah. in it. Um, I'm, I'm more stick to a certain script. Um, you know, we call it being down by law and I can kind of, I feel like I can kind of determine for my own, like when I'm interacting with someone who's a hip hopper, whether they're down by law or whether they're just kind of, you know, perpetrating a fraud to use another old school term. And that, that's really what it's about for me. That And that can be black, white, red, yellow. You know what I mean? Like, what, is, what are your yeah. intentions with this culture? Well, that's what I was that's what I was thinking about is that uh, I always operate off of the idea that credibility over time builds trust. Right. So if you observe my interaction or the interaction of someone over time and you find out that their intention is genuine, that they're not trying to manipulate or exploit, then over time. You, they can become a part of the culture. Um, but that's a long journey. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, you know, come back to you, Mickey. Um, you've gone on that journey. You've kind of, you know, uh, gone through the awkwardness of, of having to redefine how you were viewing this or, or how, you know, you were viewed. What was that experience like? How valuable was it for you? Oh, it was absolutely valuable. You know, thinking back to your your question about distinguishing between appreciation and appropriation, for a long time I would have said, well, to appreciate something, you don't necessarily make any money from it. You know, mm. you're probably spending money on it. And for a long time, I, I really took pride in the fact that I spent way more buying hip hop music, going to hip hop shows that I never made from it. But um, about ten years mm. ago, I guess the the tables turned a little bit. You know. I, I published mm-hmm. a couple books, you know, made a little bit of money off of those. And then those basically are part of what got me my, my job as a professor. So if you look at it mm-hmm. that way, I'm a good part of the my, the living I make has come from hip hop. Well, you know, and and that's the part. So, so, you know, I do, I do a lot of nonprofit work and um, a lot of it happens through corporate entities. And um, what I've tried to do with businesses is to say if you can if you can create business focused philanthropy, mm. so that you're actually making it part of the intent of what your company does, then you can you can mitigate the potential to exploit people. Mm. So if I you know if I use a particular product, if I you know if I sell I don't know seeds and I you know do urban gardens, well I'm making money off of creating those gardens, but if I if I sit down with people and say, well, this is also about creating microeconomies and making sure the wealth stays in these neighborhoods mm-hmm. and that gentrification doesn't force people out, that's a more nuanced approach. Yeah. And I think with, you know, with hip hop, when I, 
What I think is fascinating about it is that um, in a lot of ways, it's it's reinventing the way people write, mm-hmm. the way that they the way that they use words to create beats and the th- and and I mean that in an abstract way. I was looking at Coltrane's Wheel of Music. I don't know if you guys have seen that. But John Coltrane took this, you can look it up. It looks like a star with all these different drawings on it. He went away to the mountains for like six weeks. And he basically explained bebop mm. that the goal was to leap as far away from one note to make it almost sound like it was dissonance, but it's not. And I find with hip hop, with the way the rhymes fall, some, some rappers, it's like a tumble of concepts and words that come out. Right. And then others are, are, you know, creating these stories. You know, one that I just listened to today said, make music so you can lose your mind. It was a, it was a song called major journalism. <laughs> I want to, I want to hear, I want to hear why you wrote that. First of all, Dave. you're saying it and I'm like, that sounds familiar. I, think like I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good line. I should write that down. Wait a minute. <laughs> Oh. Because because I heard that and I thought, I know exactly what that means. And it's interesting you say that because that particular project was done kind of in the spirit of a Coltrane or Miles, that improvisation. And I think the um, shout out to um, Ron Thaler, who was the producer on that record. Mm. His goal, he always says, was to kind of get us out of our own heads. So we, we, we recorded it. Um, kind of in a live fashion, like we just, we, you know, one, two, three, and record it. Yeah. You know, and um, we had different cues. And so there was a whole recording process. But the point of the process was we were reacting so fast that there was no time to really think. Mm-hmm. You had to just kind of react and respond. And that creates, you know, freedom. Yeah. But you're, all, you're also tapping into kind of like the, the, the unarticulated uh, kind of... Uh, themes that if you if you it's like if you focus too long on something you can't see it correct 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 and then there's an energy behind you know i'm i'm a bit of a planner as well and i you know i i i I kind of script things and figure out how i'm gonna do things and attack things from that way and but there's a magic you know behind that when you don't have time to do that or the resources to do that and you just have to create. Well, there's also a healthy fuck you that goes along with that, You're right? Sure. Because you can, <laughs> because you can say, uh, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to play by that rule. Right. Right. I'm going to break this thing down. And by breaking it, I'm going to show you how it works. And I'm going to put it back together differently. Right. And, and I, I think, I, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I think what hip hop came from was, um, and it's funny because we made the, the, you know, the kind of child metaphor at how, you know, young the genre is. Mm-hmm. And that ignorance of like not knowing how things are supposed to be done mm. is freedom. <laughs> you yeah. Know, when there were no music programs, there were no instruments. <laughs> they were, yeah. they were just, look, I got, I got this record player. I'm you know, holding the needle up and dropping it on a certain mm-hmm. part of the record. And then I'm going to pick the needle up again, rewind it back and drop it again. And before the technology caught up and, you know, they were technique turntables and mixers and you know, a whole <laughs> industry behind it and beat machines and drum machines. These were just, you know, pause tapes, you know, guys, you know, you got one song playing and you got the tape deck playing and you're playing a loop and just hitting the record button, getting the loop, hitting it, you know, yeah. like, complete innovation based off of lack of resources. Yeah. Necessity. Right. I mean, yeah. if you, if you want to make better art, give yourself limitations, yeah. right? <laughs> you gotta, you gotta work within that. And, and I think Mickey, you, you talk about a lot of that. You, you know, in the, in the house of hip hop, um, you talk about the power of education to shift behaviors, right? I sure. mean, when you, when you dive into a topic like this and you're, and you're trying to, um, maybe impose some meaning on it or discover some meaning from it. What's the process you use to go about that without stepping on people? Because, because even just the most innocuous question, it seems, as you're trying to understand something could be viewed as either exploitative or as um, ignorance. Mm-hmm. 
So, so how do you walk that fine line as a Southern gentleman who probably, you know, would hate to, to say or do the wrong thing? I don't know if I'm a gentleman. <laughs> I'm not out there dueling with pistols. <laughs> no, I say how I approach it is number one, I learned really early on to work and write with rappers. Hmm. Um, when I first started out writing about hip hop academically, there were a few books out, um, some good, like Trisha Rose, what a really awesome book called Black Noise. Um, some not so good. And I found that the ones that were not so good did not really bring rappers themselves into the project. Mm. Um, so I, I started doing interviews really early on, collaborating, um, you know, co-writing articles. I co-authored a book with Buddha Monk, who was dirty, old dirty mm. bastards, right hand man. Mm -hmm. um, and second, other than just working with rappers, I really turned the focus inward a little bit to think about, you know, what am I really thinking about here? It's how white folks have interacted with black culture, not just in mm -hmm. hip hop, but, you know, going back through the ages, especially just through the 20th century is plenty far to take it back. You'll find plenty of exploitation. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, th those two facets have really shaped my work, just working with practitioners, working with rappers, and then really turning the focus on myself a little bit. How are white folks interacting with hip hop, whether it's fans, critics, professors who teach and write about hip hop? Mm -hmm. I think that that part's fascinating to me. And um, I think that as Americans, no matter who we are, we're, we're always grappling with the the way this country was formed and shaped mm. and my my son um who is a senior in high school was talking about barbecue and he was talking about the origins of barbecue from um you know black culture where they they had mm. you know meat that was the, the the lowest quality that they that they cooked for the longest amount of time mm. and that you know people appropriated that when they had to taste it better than the other meat um but that's the same thing with jazz you know it's the same thing with blues it's the same thing with rock and roll i mean you can you can you can see the people you know little <laughs> little richard started writing songs that pat boone couldn't sing fast enough mm. right i mean <laughs> you see there are ways that people try to fight the exploitation um but the thing that i think you guys do that is interesting and i wrote down a phrase for me because i i've listened to several of your podcasts you do a thing that I, I, I like to think of as relationship Jenga, mm. where you're very, very careful about how you pull those issues out and you talk about them and you look at them, but you don't topple the whole thing. And it's really interesting to me that the two of you can do that so well together. So I want to ask you, how did you get together and why do you think the two of you work so well coming at it from different points of view? We've been asked this a couple of times. Um, I think the key word is respect. Mm -hmm. I think um, I have a healthy respect for Mickey, and I think he has the same for me. And that's kind of the foundation of um, kind of how we we're able to do this. As far as how we met, we met at a, uh, a hip hop um, panel discussion, right? Mm -hmm. um, and again, you know, in that I remember being on that panel and feeling like, hey, this guy knows what he's talking about. You know what I mean? And so yeah. that created a dialogue after that. I think he invited me to another panel at uh, Mercy County Community College or something. Right. And we kept in touch. We were both living in the uh, Philly area. And yeah, we just developed a friendship from there. Um, and these conversations that we would have back and forth throughout the years um he would always push me to write you know just mm. by giving me opportunities to write like hey write this chapter and i'm like okay yeah you know what i mean <laughs> and so I, I i appreciate him for that and it kind of all culminated in this book fest we did back in 2018 and um where we met anthony and it was suggested to us to um do a podcast together. And I don't know that we had any idea that this would be our podcast. I think mm -hmm. we were just like, Hey, let's hang out, talk some shit. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we we know our interests, we understand where it came from, but it has developed into this dialogue that um yeah, is really important. And um, you know, we don't have millions of listeners, but the listeners we do have are very engaged mm-hmm. and we hear feedback a lot and it's that same feedback like you guys stretch stretch me you know and, mm-hmm. and, and that's what we have to do we have to stretch each other and make each other think from different angles and different perspectives but there has to be an initial willingness to listen so so, so a couple of things one uh i have a friend who um who does a lot of work with doctors without borders and uh their motto their informal motto is Semper Gumby, always flexible, right? right. Uh, and that, I think, a flexible mind, a flexible point of view is is huge. Um, but I also want to talk about this idea of putting yourself out there. And I'll and I, I give you a little story that happened to me. Um, I, I inadvertently uh, wound up taking a class that was taught by Martin Luther King's mentor, huh. a guy, guy named... Um, Samuel Proctor. Okay. And it was the history of black education in America. And it was 350 person lecture hall class. And I was one of three white people in it. Mm. And by the third class, the professor like pointed to me and said, Hey, can you stand up for a second? And he said, I mean this in the nicest way, but you know, why are you here? Right. And I, I laughed and said, well, I wanted to take a course that I knew I knew nothing about. And this is one of them. And I, and it started a friendship. Mm. And it broke down a lot of barriers with me um, because, you know, I grew up in a very diverse high school, probably maybe 60, 40 white, black. So I had a lot of, you know, friends that were black or, you know, my best friend is Filipino, but it's different to be the minority Mm. in a room and to listen to people talk about the pain of being discriminated against and to put that into context where because there were only three white people and maybe because he singled me out so that people could understand my motivation, the barriers dropped. Right. People started to talk about who they really were. So I kind of want to throw this to you, Mickey. Why is being uncomfortable so damn uncomfortable? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, if there's no discomfort, you're not really growing, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you said a few minutes ago that Americans are constantly kind of wrestling with history. I think a lot of us mm-hmm. aren't. I think a lot of us are pretty comfortable sitting back and accepting, you know, this fan- fantasy version of the past mm-hmm. or, you know, how we think things were, how we think things should be, and don't really put forth the thought or undertake the research to find out, you know, is is this image I have of the past? Is this accurate? You know, are these things I heard from my grandfather? Are those true? Yeah. Um, Are are these kind of people really like that? Are people from this part of the country of this part of town? Are they really this way? Man, how do you, how do you parse that? How do you parse sitting there, you know, and hear somebody say that the civil war was about states' rights. Yeah. I mean, how do you not lose your shit? I mean, because, you know, there's a whole portion of society that is actively trying to recast history. And have been since the civil war ended. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's right. been this long-term project. And I do encounter that. You know, I work with typically 18 to 22 year olds. And I do see that mm. attitude maybe once, twice a semester. And I, I find that when you, you interrogate it a little bit, when you ask them, okay, tell me about mm. states' rights. You know, where does the notion of states' rights come from? Why would you say that this conflict was about states' rights? It typically falls apart pretty quickly because they don't know a whole lot about it. Mm. Um, and sometimes that's the first part to kind of unsettle their foundation just a little bit, shake up their foundation when they realize, well, you know, I've just, I know these two words, states rights that I heard somewhere. It sounded mm-hmm. good. Right. Um, once I was really but, but, questioned but that's about what, it, I didn't but that's know what, what Dave meant. said, right? D- Dave said the same thing, right? Is, yeah. you know, you're, you're kind of looking at hip hop and you're saying, okay, is that guy parodying something and, and mm. that's fake? And you're, you're looking for what's genuine. And if it's, you know, I always say, you, you know, you can be I- I- ignorant or, mm. um, you know, uh, apathetic, but you got to choose one, right? Or ignorant or arrogant. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> you so you got to pick. 
if you're ignorant, okay, I can work with you, but you can't be ignorant and arrogant. If you're arrogant and you know your shit, okay, great. But when you see that combination, um, I want I want to ask you, Dave, how do you how do you weather that? <laughs> how do you respond to that when you see ignorance and arrogance wrapped together? You know, I genuinely and generally don't. Hmm. I'm, I'm, I practice abstinence. Um, Mickey will tell you, I just, there's certain people, opinions. Mm -hmm. I just, I won't deal. I'm not going to deal with you. Like, Oh, that's how you feel. Okay. I'm not going to deal with you because if, if we're going towards a goal and that goal is, you know, Kumbaya, we're all in harmony. We're a melting pot. Mm -hmm. Then certain things have to be addressed. And if there's a willful ignorance, then you stay on your side. I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> you be over I, there. Don't come over here and stay over pl there. Please teach me that. I feel like a good portion of my life would, would get better if. But, <laughs> you know what? And, and you know what? Because we have these conversations on the podcast regarding like the role of the ally and, and you know, the name mm -hmm. of your podcast is Allies. So it's great. And I, I think in many ways that's easy for me because mm. you know i can kind of retreat to what to the um so it's like you guys can't go here right there's these places we can't go mm -hmm. and so we've made the places we are you know home we've made hey i can just go yeah. back home so if i enter into a space and i feel like oh i'm not accepted or i'm i'm comfortable just going back home i don't need yeah. To engage where I think the larger society, it's tough because it's happening, you know, like it's, it's Mickey's neighbor. So it's like, well, I'm yeah. here <laughs> and this yeah. is my neighbor and I have to deal with this and I don't want to deal with this. So now, right. Do I say something? Do I confront it? But something has to be done because I don't feel comfortable in my world with these folks in my world. But that's not really my world per se. So I just kind of go, ah, well, I won't deal. I mean, that's fascinating to me because it, it it's a bit of wisdom to know not to beat yourself against that brick wall. But there's a power in home. And, you know, I wanted to ask you, Mickey, you know, you, you grew up in the South. Um, what's it like when you hear somebody, you know, say white trash or say, you know, hillbilly? Because, you know, my grandmother um, and grandfather lived in the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, and, you know, they my mother grew up in Alaska. Um, when I hear people talk about Southerners and they call them hillbillies, et cetera, there, there's a bit that that hurts because that's it's not always, you know, it's not true. You know, there are pieces of that that are that are true. How do you deal with it on on the other side, not the hip hop side, but but growing up in Kentucky and, and the way people might respond to that? Yeah, I mean, first off, that that phrase "white trash" that you definitely hear thrown around. I mean, what mm -hmm. a what a messed up phrase to begin with, right? Yeah. We're we're going to distinguish. We're going to put this adjective "white" on here, just so you know. We believe all other races are already trash, and you just <laughs> yeah. happen to be the bottom of the totem pole. You're white, but you're adjacent to trash. Mm -hmm. I mean, that when I hear that term, that's usually what first comes to mind, and people mm -hmm. will toss that around um, in a very joking manner, and I guess think that they're they're cutting on white people. When really, if you yeah. think about that term, there's a lot more going on there. Mm -hmm. uh, more to your question, like. I mean, somebody will make a joke about like squirrel gravy or uh, mm -hmm. eating possums wow. or something like that. And, um, you know, it's also kind of outlandish. I don't know that it bothers me. There have been moments in like Q&As, um, you know, when I gave a talk or I was on a panel or something where someone in the audience will basically say, you know, well, you can't ever really understand this music or this culture because of where you grew up. Mm. And that honestly, that hurts a little more. Yeah. Um, and that's something I've had to work through a lot, you know, through more writing and reading and talking and just doing and being. Um, because that really that shouldn't hurt, but it does. But but there's a there's a there's a toggle that you learn, isn't mm. there? And yeah. where you because you know, I I used to spend summers in Virginia and you know, I had this still had this accent. So it was clear I wasn't from 
there. Mm -hmm. There were certain places I couldn't go. There were certain roads I was told expressly, don't go down that road because there was a still down there or something like that. And they knew who I was. But there's a toggle where you say, okay, I, I won't be a part of that, but I can witness it or I can you know, participate to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to ask you that, Dave, when you, when you see people that are doing that, um, how do you, how do you want to, or, or how do you express an appreciation or, um, or um, open up to them when it's clear, you know, to a certain extent, they're even acknowledging that they're, that they're an outsider. Um, I think that's, you know, that's, that plays a big part in me and Mickey's relationship as well. I always tell mm-hmm. him like, I, you know, I appreciate him for being who he is. Um, I push back on, you know, the whole, like, you don't understand you're not from here. Well, like, cause mm-hmm. that's the point, right? Like, yeah. what do we want? We want you not to engage and not understand it, but we want to be able to say, you know, expand our art to different cultures, different um, audiences, you know, make Mm -hmm. as much money as possible, but we don't want you to comment on it. We want you to consume it. We don't want, like, what do we want? So anytime there's an individual who, like I said, I can see is genuinely engaging the culture. They want to know more, you know, they're respectful and they're, you know, not knowing or not, having the perspectives of someone from the environment, I'm open. I'm open. So I'm going to give you an example. And I think this is a brilliant freaking example of somebody who understood how to be an ally and took his position based on how he was, how he was approached So Paul McCartney and Rihanna and Kanye collaborated on a song. Right. And Paul McCartney didn't write any lyrics. <laughs> he played bass and he sang backup. Right. And I thought that was brilliant because one, he's a kick-ass bass player, right? So mm-hmm. Kanye knew that. And when you listen to McCartney, he said, I, I came there not knowing how he writes. And so we played. And I can play with any musician, but he was leading this. And McCartney just, you know, made himself available. And as they noodled, and you know, he's like, it was two days, we did this, and I left. It was his project and he was really interested to be, you know, kind of approached that way because Kanye didn't treat him like a celebrity. He just listened to what he was doing and responded to that. And that to me seems like a really good way of looking at allies is, you know, don't come with a preconceived notion. And don't come wanting to lead automatically based on, you know, some... Uh, you know, status in society of, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whatever you think of yourself. So you come in and a lot, a lot, you know, and that happens a lot also like in activism, you'll see individuals come into neighborhoods and they'll say, Hey, we want to help. Yeah. And they're not listening to the actual neighborhood, right? They come in and this is our plan. Yeah. This is how we're going to do this. This is going to be the protest. This is going to be the thing. And it's like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait a minute. Let the people who it's being, who are being affected lead you know what's going on and guide and listen and and offer but um yeah sometimes you know we just come in wanting to control i think it's funny because um we spoke about it earlier in terms of kind of you know white black but then there's you know outside of the country there's like american foreign and like oh, yeah. even black americans when we go overseas we tend to behave <laughs> Mm-hmm. In the manner that we say white folks behave in America to us, there's this, you know, this authority, this, yeah, I know the way. <laughs> that's, that's, it's fascinating to me. And because I've spent a lot of time traveling and, you know, I can pick out the Americans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not yeah. that hard. Yeah, it's pretty easy, um, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. And, and I think that, um, you know, when I, when I look at the work that you two do and, the the concentric circles, right? The overlap in um, how you, Dave, might be creating music, and then stepping back and you know, looking to Mickey to say, okay, give me your perspective. Mm-hmm. 
or Mickey throwing a chapter at you and saying, what do you think about this? <laughs> Each time that happens, we, we build up a deeper and better understanding. And I love that. You know, when we did a, we renovated a home in, on Green Street in North Philly. Mm -hmm. And in talking to the community people, it was an anchor home on a corner. And, you know, it was blight. And when you fixed it, and then, you know, somebody was able to buy it, um, it helped the neighborhood feel positive. So when we did a celebration, you know, we had this discussion where, well, we need more chairs for the grandmothers and the aunties to come and sit down because we want these ladies to sit down and talk about this, what it right. means, because they're the ones who are looking out the window. Right. You know, they're the ones who know how the neighborhood really works. <laughs> What's happening now that is making you more or less optimistic around the way that people are approaching hip hop as allies or as um, advocates instead of exploiters? Hmm. Well, I think hmm, that's a tough one. I mean, I think that it's important to see people reaching out, you know, trying to make those connections. Um, just as you were mentioning a minute ago, um, you don't want to walk in someplace and just act like you own the place. You've got this plan. You're going to show everybody how it goes. They're going to follow your lead. But at the same time, I think that some of these requests can overburden people too. You know, I'm thinking specifically mm. about working in universities. You know, there, there are very few black professors, um, something mm -hmm. like 6% of professors on the tenure track nationwide are black today. Um, so anytime there's, there's a diversity or equity initiative, everybody looks to that person. Yep. Um, and in a way you think, well, of course it makes sense. Like, of, of course that you hope they want to be involved. You don't want white people leading every diversity initiative, but then <laughs> man, like it's so much extra work. Like my university just put forth this idea to, uh, include diversity and equity work in tenure decisions. And I was just mm -hmm. thinking right off the bat, you know, well, that's, that's only going to be applied to non-white professors. You know, it's never mm. going to be the expectation that a white professor engages in this kind of work, but it's always going to be the expectation that a professor oh, yeah. of color does. Yeah. I mean, and that's the, that's the part where it, it, you can, <laughs> if you have friends that, uh, you know, are of color, or if you have friends that are, have, are a different ethnicity, you can see the look on their face when they, when they realize somebody's, you know, tapping them to be the font of of that and you know all of that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so how do you deal with that? <laughs> how do you deal with that politely? I know you like to walk away sometimes, but you know when you're when you're caught in the crosshairs, what do you do? Um, let me answer the other question first yep. because mm -hmm. I wanted um, to make a point about the yep. uh, kind of the diversity from a cultural standpoint. Yep. I think what um, streaming and kind of the traditional label. Uh, or, or, or channels to get your music out there, what that's done, the stripping away of that has done, has created kind of this independent movement of artists of all kinds flooding, you know, their music into the market. And yeah. fans are now kind of able to kind of pick their stars, excuse me. Mm -hmm. So that's, we've had a, a serious kind of movement of women in hip hop over the last mm. couple of years. Um, you know, so now we have women, we have uh, lyrical women who like can rap really well. Then we have the women, mm -hmm. you know, who show their bodies off and they make that type of music. And then mm -hmm. we have like the white boys who can rap. And then we have like trap white boys. And then we have like the crazy white boys with the hair and the, the whole get up. And then we have like the lyrical, and you know, like there's so much of everything now yeah. and there's a lot of collaboration i i'd see that diversity also in age where you have like the older hip hoppers like myself engaging with you know the 20 year old rappers and they're collaborating and you know there's so much kind of interweaving of different ideologies different age groups different and you know i think that's refreshing that yeah that is is the hip hop community more inclusive than other communities like country or heavy metal or, you know, 
it, it interesting because I think we get, you know, the black community and hip hop in general get, you know, the kind of, you know, you're homophobic and, you know, we're, we're misogynistic and that's kind of like the rap on hip hop. And when I step outside for a second and I look at the other genres mm-hmm. and I say, wait a minute. <laughs> You've seen White Snake. You've seen Tony Katane on the, on the hood of a car. I mean, wait a minute now. I don't know. I don't know that there is a more inclusive um, culture than hip hop. Yeah. That, that's how I see it. I feel like, um, yes, there are elements of it that are um, exploitative toward women. Um, but there are also some very strong women who are pushing back on that inside the environment, inside the culture, which if it wasn't an inclusive culture, they would have forced them out. Correct. And I, and I'm fascinated by that, especially when you think about the browning of America, the fact that we are becoming a, you know, a minority majority country and that, you know, some of the backlash we're seeing politically with this insanity is white people realizing that they, you know, that inclusivity is going to be more uh, regular. It's going right. to be happening. It's going to be accelerating. That they're going to be the three, the three white guys in the lecture hall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. And, and I think that that's, and, and it's a great, it's a great lesson if people can step back. Yeah. So there was, there was one other thing that I, that I wanted to get into um, before we, you know, start to wrap up. And it, it really has to do with the language. Um, Hip hop, there's something. It's like a, it's like a uh, follow-on effect. Hip hop is now influencing the language, not just being influenced by, by culture and language itself. So it's throwing off um, huge kind of echoes of things they've created that people are now accepting. That you know, it becomes part of the vernacular. Um, how, how important is it for you, Dave, when you sit down? to write, um, to think about how you're expressing your thoughts and how unique you need to be to differentiate yourself as a lyricist? That's a great question. Um, and one that becomes more noticeable as I age in the, um, genre. So I would say, you know, as a 22-year-old, 23-year-old, you know, in that era, I was just speaking as a guy from East Flatbush, Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. My vernacular was East Flatbush, Brooklyn. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And that's, I, I didn't give it any thought. Um, and what I was articulating was that of a 20-something-year-old kid from Brooklyn. Um, as I've matured, and the subject matter has matured, the question then becomes, you know, how do you articulate this from a hip hop point of view mm-hmm. as a mature man who wants to speak about mature things? Um, sometimes even my use of the quote unquote N word mm-hmm. where I may say, ah, I don't really need to say that I, when I'm rapping, I say it because mm-hmm. I always want it to be understood that I'm talking to a p- specific group of people. I never want them to feel that even though it may be like high level rapping and I may be talking about some spiritual stuff or something mm-hmm. or, you know, going inside yourself to find the whatever in you. I still want to say my nigga because I want mm-hmm. them to know <laughs> that I haven't left. Yeah, you're inside the circle, right? I correct, mean, correct. And you can say those things, you know, if I, if I, you know, call somebody a WAP or a guinea or whatever, I can do that because I'm Italian and it's wrong. And, you know, uh, but that's my prerogative. Right. But it also triggers to people, if I'm going to tease another Italian, that I am part of that tribe. Correct. And there's an, there's an intimacy that you're creating. Intimacy is the word. Now, on the other hand of that, there are things that say, um, my nephews or my son 
I don't, I'm not going to speak like them because there's, there, mm-hmm. while I'm, while I'm being inclusive as a hip hopper, I have to be mm-hmm. exclusive as a, I'm a grown man. I'm not a child. So I'm not going to be saying yes. like little kid slang just to sound cool. Cause then I sound like an old man trying to sound cool. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there's that balance. You know what I mean? I'm not going to, I'm not going to say the latest word that the kids are saying in a rap unless I'm being like, um, satirical about it. <laughs> well, um, it, and and that's what I was going after because as you get older, you become more self conscious of your place in right. any ecosystem. Right. And and what I find interesting about you, Mickey, is you put your you put yourself as a professor in context and contact with a rapidly rotating set of young people. True. And you know. It's, uh, you know, the, the faces may change, um, but each year you get a year older and they say the same same age. That's true. (laughs) And so that exposure to a generational shift that we see from baby boomer to gen X to millennial to gen Z, all of that, you're also in a profession of words. Definitely. Uh, around the the importance of using the right words and respecting the fact that they that how they say what they say matters. Yeah, I can think of one word that still pops up in a lot of student papers, and I'm always a little bit shocked when I see this from an 18 year old. It makes me wonder if they're raised by their grandparents. But mm. the word "colored," wow. Um, you know, I'll see students write. Maybe once a year, I'll see an 18 or 19-year-old use that term. Hmm. And, you know, I always have to stop, you know, jot it in the margins, plus send them an email, plus try to catch them for a second after class. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and just say, hey, you know, so that word is not really preferred these days. And I can give you a couple of good articles that will tell you how. Um, don't know how much depth you want to go into. But uh, yeah. Yeah. the word oriental, too, will pop up to describe a person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll say, hey, you know, if you're talking about oriental rugs, that's different. But uh, yep. people don't like to be called oriental. Um, and I find a lot of times, you know, an 18 or 19 year old is just simply not aware. And it's just kind of horrified to think, oh, my God, I turned this into my professor. He thinks I'm some like racist backwards hick. So I try to be very... Yep gentle about it but i try to catch them in you know two or three different ways so they know i really mean it and they know i really want them to think about it that's interesting do you know um mickey did you hear of the controversy around the um female rapper mulatto i did (laughs) i did yeah (laughs) and she 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 announced the name change she hasn't announced what she's changing it to yet but Mm. she she Mm. will Change the name, and she's, I believe, is a biracial young lady, she and just is, didn't yeah. know that mulatto was, you know, didn't know the origins of it, didn't know it was offensive. See, I so. remember <laughs> in fourth grade being taught a vocabulary lesson, and I'm sure it went along with something we read, but mm. we were taught the terms mulatto, quadroon, octoroon. Mm-hmm. And like I That's look back, coming out of New Orleans, yeah, yeah. and I just think, like, what the hell was this fourth grade teacher doing? <laughs> emphasizing this vocabulary to a room for the 100% white kids in wow. you know, central Kentucky. And it, I, that lesson just really comes back to my head now and then. And I think, what the hell did she have in mind with this? <laughs> you know, again, I look at the, is it ignorance or arrogance? If it's, if it's ignorance, okay. Mm-hmm. If it's, if it's arrogance and because they can say what they want to say, or they're passing, they're indoctrinating somebody yeah. in right. words that, that, describe people as less than, yeah. then I have very little patience for that. See, I'm patient with an ignorant student. I'm not patient with an ignorant teacher. Yes. Yeah. Well, they should be exactly. to a place where they don't exhibit such ignorance. So I have to take it as purposeful. See, but I've, I've had that in business a, a lot. Mm. And, you know, you guys talked about, you know, if see something, say something, right? Because you, if you can dial somebody back and say, hey, by the way, that you shouldn't talk about, you know, you should not be using those words to describe people. Sure. Um, if it's ignorant, you can see it in their eyes. Mm. And if it's yeah. not, you can see it 
in their eyes. <laughs> it's almost like a fear or anger response, right? Or, or, or you got discovered. Ah, uh, yeah. You're yeah. not one of us. Mm, okay. And then it's like, you know, pack up the bags, throw everything in the, you know, in the, in the car and zip away because they thought you were on that team and you're right. not. Right. And that, and that kind of gets me to the, I know we're just about running out of time. What I, what I like to end on is, um, the context of where we are. So I only ask two questions. Um, so what, and now what? So I'm going to ask you the, so what, so what that we are trying to become allies. Why is it so important? What does it, what does it matter that people will take time out of their days? You know, like you said, with your hip, your hip hop, uh, podcast, you know, it's the type of thing that those, those people who are loyal really are loyal. They really enjoy it. And I find it's the same thing here. Why does it matter that we want more people to think about being allies? Should I take this one? Go for it. Yeah. yeah I'll right. add on, but go for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, just like Dave said, it, it benefits him in a lot of situations to just walk away and not engage. Because there are plenty of people who are looking for a fight, even just a verbal mm -hmm. fight. And they're set in their opinions. He's not going to change their minds. It's smart to walk away in those situations. Mm -hmm. um, and there are still situations where, as a white ally, it's still smart for me to walk away. But I think I have more of a responsibility to try. And when yeah. I miss an opportunity, I really feel like, man, you know, I don't know how sexist this way as this person is. You know, maybe if I just said, hey, man, that's not cool. I don't like hearing that yeah. kind of stuff. Maybe that would have gone a long way. You know, maybe he would have thought twice the next time. Um, mm -hmm. Even if he didn't change the way he thinks, maybe he'll change the way he speaks. Yeah. And I think the more people who are willing, especially, you know, the more white people who are willing to speak up and say, hey, man, that's not funny. I didn't like that accent you did in that joke. Um, mm -hmm. I think that that's where the work really needs to take place. Um, you know, we can't sit back and say, well, you know. I'm sure he didn't mean anything by it. He's a good guy. He yeah. does a lot of charity work. Yeah. You know, we start to excuse like all the other good things about the person. I'm sure he's a good guy. Um, but no, you gotta, you gotta say something, I think. And the more people who are doing it, the more effective it's going to be. And I was going to say, um, or just to add to that and not to sound like, you know, a civil rights leader or anything, but I think we're in a very interesting time. And I think, it brings a unique and special opportunity as a nation to kind of chart our course moving forward and what mm -hmm. kind of, you know, America are we going to be? And I think it mm. starts with um, this dialogue and these conversations and going to, like you said, uncomfortable places and finding resolve. That, you know, you, you, you reminded me of that quote, you know, the, the arc of the moral universe, um, you know, bends toward justice, but mm -hmm. it, it's, 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 it's a two, one step forward, two steps back in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I agree with you. I think we're at an inflection point. Yeah. I think that a lot of this discomfort is because there's a generational change. There's a demographic oh, change a and it's shift. all happening. Yeah, yeah. All at the same time. It's like a, what they call a tectonic plates where it is. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so then what's next now? What? What's going to happen? And I'm, I'm I'm throwing it to Dave first. What what get look into your you know magic eight ball, your crystal ball. What's going to happen when COVID evaporates? What's going to happen five years down the road in terms of you know how people look at hip hop? Um, you know the whether it becomes you know more inclusive or whether people are have a better understanding of how to engage. Hmm. Um, I'm going to take an optimistic view of this, and I'm going to say that. Um, Hip hop being kind of dominant American pop culture now, mm -hmm. um, that will continue. That's only going to grow. But there will be a, I would say, renaissance return of um, hip hop being used as like a conscious and enlightening tool. More artists will start to produce mm -hmm. music that reflects the times um more artists will begin to use their platforms to engage in you know the struggle quote unquote uh, i believe that you know 
the last stand of kind of like the ignorant, uh, you know, whether it's white supremacy or whatever you want, the last stand of, of that mentality uh, in five years, we'll, we'll defeat that. And it'll be kind of like tolerate, you know, get in line. If you can't mm-hmm. be, if you can't be agreeable, then you just got to tolerate you're at a minority. You got to live with it. Um, Cause this is the way we're going as a country. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that the shift will, con- will continue to shift. And I think that the, uh, those of us who really, um, you know, see color and see diversity and mm-hmm. embrace it, we'll win. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm glad that you have an optimistic point of view on it. How about you, Mickey? And you caught Dave in a good mood. Usually I'm uh, <laughs> I, that's what I was thinking. That's I'm usually like, oh, the optimism yeah. here. He's usually the pessimist. For the ability to trash something. You know the Man. thing I don't like. <laughs> no, see, I I definitely have felt that optimism. And I still feel some of it, but I am pessimistic. I'm worried right now. I think there's such a backlash. And it, it's not only brewing, it's there. You know, there's such mm. a pushback to each little moment of progress. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that we're probably only a couple months away from the the whole notion and the phrase white ally being just a joke. I think mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's such a strategy to turn anything from political correctness to the term yeah. woke to mm-hmm. just, it mm-hmm. just heads into like late night comedy fodder so quickly yeah. And yeah. it really weakens what was positive about those kind of notions up front. It's very yeah, I mean, that's what got, it. Yes, because exploitation, there are people who are who are masters at that mm-hmm. and they they find the the pocket where they can where they can get in and they they just keep going. That's why I got to the Jenga thing. I kept thinking yeah. like, well, who's who's trying to breach the walls here and how do you, you know, be more aware of those types of people, but I'm going to, uh, so we're, we're running out of time, but I want to ask one question and I'm going to, I'm going to try and phrase it the, the right way. So I, so I give you guys some room here. Give me the single greatest piece of hip hop art that has ever been created. And that can be a song. It can be an album. It can be a concept, whatever you want, but what's the, if you had to choose your favorite in hip hop, what is it? Supreme clientele. Mm. Okay, I'm gonna why? Give, oh, go go go. Why? Yes, good Man, question. The wordplay, the bugged out surrealism to the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean everything from the album cover to the the album art. Yeah, I mean Ghostface Killer, Supreme clientele. It just doesn't get any better than that. All right, Dave. I'm going to give two. I'm going to put my journalist hat on and say the greatest, I would say, is the movie Wild Style. Mm. Okay. My favorite is um, Public Enemy Rebel Without a Pause. Mm. Why? Because sonically, Rebel Without a Pause is probably <laughs> the greatest sounding <laughs> hip hop mm-hmm. record I've ever heard. And it takes me right back to like 87 Maximas with systems mm-hmm. on, you know, Flatbush <laughs> Avenue or Church mm-hmm. Avenue in Brooklyn and just, you know, girls with bamboo earrings. And it just creates a picture for me yeah. that I will never forget. And that is hip hop. To me, that is like my experience in hip hop, that song. And that was my point, right? Is when you can find a piece of art that mainlines the entire feeling of something you love, Mm -hmm. it's precious. It is precious to you. It defines something for you. And that's what I love about hip hop is that you can ask a hundred people and there will be a hundred different answers. That level of diversity is unheard of. I don't think you can pick that in rock and roll. You certainly can't pick it in classical. I'd be hard placed to put it in country. 
that's the thing that I don't think people who love hip hop understand mm. is just there are there are masterpieces that are being created here for a group of people who appreciate them deep in their heart. And that's what I love about you guys is that you you dive into those things and you show them to people. So I want to thank you for that because oh. I, I get a lot out of that. Thanks. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. That means a lot. Absolutely. Well, that's all the time we have. Uh, I want to thank uh, Mickey and Dave for joining me and for diving into the, the deep end with some of my more complicated questions. If you have any additional questions for them, please send them to us. If you have ways that we can improve uh, the podcast and do it better or differently, I'd love to hear from you. And if you come across somebody that you think would be a great interview, please let us know. So take care, and I will talk to you soon. My life, your life.